0: We're going to get started. Guys are in a chatty mood this morning. That's great. Praise the Lord for that. And and truly, you know, pray, praise the Lord for the, the birthday of the church. And, and so you can, after the service, you can take your chattiness out into the lobby. We're going to have cookies and everything celebrating, uh, celebrating the birthday. So we bought a bunch of cookies, so... Um, Help yourself to those. Now, when they run out, they run out. So don't come asking for more. If they're gone, they're gone. So if you don't get out there in time, um, what, what can I say? But, but man, I do praise the Lord for that. And, and you know, I, I always want us to be considering not only the legacy of the church, but, you know, if the Lord somehow tarries, I, I can't see how that would happen, but if the Lord somehow tarries kind of the state that we are continually leaving the church in. And, and, and our need to take ownership of that and not just come and attend and take and receive, but participate and invest our life into what God is doing here. And so, you know, I hope that that's your heart as well. It's why we're going through the book of Acts so we can learn what it means to really have a true passion for the mission. And listen, we have an incredible passage in front of us this morning in Acts chapter 2. So if you haven't turned there yet, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be studying the first 13 verses of this chapter, and in it we are going to see the Spirit's arrival. That is our very simple sermon title, very descriptive sermon title for today's message. And I, and I need to warn you just here from the beginning that today is going to be more workmanlike than normal. Um, I, I'm going to be doing more I, I, you know, I understand the difference between teaching and preaching, and and you know, on Sunday mornings here at, at this time, I like to be more preaching and 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 teach you some things along the way and mix the two. This is going to be much more teaching and a little bit of preaching uh, along the way. But there's some things that we really need to make sure that we understand in the text this morning. There. Are, there is a lot to cover. In fact, there's maybe too much to cover, but I'm going to do my best and, and we'll get through it one way or the other. Uh, but it's, this passage is, is very important to understand. It's, it is, this chapter is maybe the most misunderstood and most used chapter in all of Scripture. It's certainly up there. Um, it is a battleground for some major doctrinal controversies. You know, I told you from the beginning of this study that Acts is a transition book. And what we're going to see today is a major dispensational transition or a shift occur uh, in what we're studying today. Because in Acts chapter 2, Jesus Christ is birthing a new dispensation where men will be baptized into a living, organic body called the church or the body of Christ. Now I'm going to take most of the morning to discuss that one sentence right there one way or another but but I need to just set the stage here at the beginning because the death resurrection and then ascension of Jesus Christ issues in the sending of the spirit and the birth uh, the beginning stages of this new age. We've, we've talked about this through this study already, right? We're only in chapter 2, but we've we've talked about this multiple times. We've been leading up to this, but there was the promise that we saw in Acts chapter 1 and also in Luke 24 that is being fulfilled in our text this morning. That promise that God would send the Comforter, send the Holy Spirit. And you see in Luke 24, verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, and that promise was that sending of the Holy Spirit, but tarry you here in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Then we've looked at Acts 1 4 many times, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. And then he describes that promise even more down in verse eight. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. We've read these verses many times and and that promise was that God was going to send the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis after Jesus had ascended. We've read John 16:7 many times before, but you know, one thing you'll learn today this repetition is the price of learning. In John 16:7, Jesus listen to what Jesus had previously told his disciples. He said, "Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And that's what we get to see today. And this is a big deal. It's a very big deal and a very big change. Because in the Old Testament, the, the Spirit was with people. Right? But he could come and go. We looked at that last week. But after Acts chapter 2, where do we find the Holy Spirit as it relates to believers? He is in them. So he was with them before and he's in them after after what we're going to see today because there's a new economy, a change is happening. And it's a new economy altogether. This is the beginning of the new age and the vehicle of the new age becomes the church. The body of believers and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, all in an invisible union with Jesus Christ and with each other. And that's the mystery that unfolds beginning in Acts chapter 2. Now, as as we've already talked about and we'll continue to talk about, it, it still transitions over time. It's still Jewish focused at first, but it doesn't change. What went on and what is happening and what we're going to look at today. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what happened. We're going to see what it means for us. And we have a ton to cover. So we're going to get right in it this morning. You're already there in Acts chapter 2. So let's read the first 13 verses and begin breaking this all down for you. In Acts chapter 2 verse 1, the Bible says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another what meaneth this others mocking said these men are full of new wine and that question there what meaneth this there at the at the end of that passage is has been one of the great questions throughout church history what what's happening here what means what what meaneth this what what was god doing and that's what we're going to try to answer today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to direct our time uh, and then we'll get into this study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word and, and thank, thank you for the clarity that you bring to this. This is a, a misunderstood and misused uh, section of scripture and and Lord, I, I ask that your Holy Spirit teaches us this morning and it's not my words but yours to so move me out of the way and, and speak clearly. I, it's overwhelming to me to be able to fully explaining all that's going on here. And so, Lord, I, I, just, um, I just trust that you'll do it. And so, Lord, I, I do pray that everything that is said is true to your word, that it's honoring and glorifying to you, and that you'll use it in our life in some practical way. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I've, I've told you, this section of Scripture is just a great theological battleground today. And the two primary heresies, Coming from these verses involve a misunderstanding and a private interpretation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then also a misunderstanding and a private interpretation of tongues and speaking in tongues. We're going to discuss both of those this morning. So if you're in the habit of taking notes, other than what's included in your bulletin, today's a day you need to keep your pencil sharp, or, or make sure you have plenty of ink uh, in your pen. And we're just going to address these in order as we normally do, and, the, and, and we're going to start By looking at the event of the Spirit's coming. The event of the Spirit's coming. That's our that's our first point. And the event is Pentecost. Look at verse one. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, I point this out because it's important to note that Pentecost was an event and not an experience. All right? It was an event and not an experience. And, and, and some people try to make it into an experience, and they certainly experienced something that day. But Pentecost itself is not something that we're trying to get back to. It was an event that happened one time on that day. It was, it was when and not what. And many people confuse the two because Pentecost was an actual event that occurred annually. It was one of the seven Jewish feasts outlined in Leviticus 23. And those, if you don't know about those Jewish feasts outlined in, in Leviticus 23, there's just a beautiful picture of God's redemptive plan in there. And we don't have time to go through that today, but it's just a beautiful study. And Pentecost, also known in the Bible as the Feast of Weeks, that word Pentecost was just translated from the Greek word meaning 50 or 50th, right? Pente, the five fifty. And that's because Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, was to be celebrated 50 days after Passover. So Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16, describes it. She, she said, the Bible says, Ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheath of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number 50 days. And he shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And this is talking about Pentecost, the feast of weeks, seven weeks, forty-nine days, and the day after is the fiftieth day. And this feast celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. We know that from Exodus chapter thirty-four and verse twenty-two. It says, Now shalt observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Additionally, Jewish history tells us that Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks, was also to commemorate the giving of the law, which would have occurred at at this same time of year. And I think it's no coincidence whatsoever that God chose the coming of his Spirit to occur at a time when first the bearing of fruit was being celebrated. Because Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such. There is no law. And we know from Galatians 6, 8, that for he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You see, the Spirit is what brings fruit. And this was being celebrated at a time of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And then second, It's no surprise that the giving of the Spirit come at a time where the giving of the word was being commemorated. Because 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, knowing this first, and no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? By the Holy Ghost. And, And we also know that it's the Holy Ghost, it's the Spirit of God that teaches us the Bible, that we're able to learn the Word of God from, according to John 14.26 and John 16.13. So don't miss these connections. There's so many great pictures in in what we're going to look at today. So Pentecost is an event, the sacred feast of the Jews, but it was also an event that did have a couple unique characteristics that foreshadowed what was to come on the very day in Acts chapter 2. That the spirit arrived. The first unique characteristic is that two wave loaves of bread were to be baked and offered. And and literally, they're not not the bread of that day, the, the wave loaves were not like you know a big loaf of bread, more like think like a pita type of bread. And they would literally wave them, they would hold them and wave them to the Lord. And there were to be two wave offerings, two wave loaves baked and offered. That's the first unique characteristic about this one that you don't see in the other feast. Secondly, those wave loaves of bread were to be made with leaven. They were to be made with leaven. We see these characteristics in, in the very next verse in Leviticus 23. We just read verses 15 and 16. Now let's look at verse 17. shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves, of two tenth deals, they shall be a fine flour, they shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And and many of you know this, but in case you don't, leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. You can see that outline in Leviticus 13 and 14, and Luke 12.1 and 1 Corinthians 5.8 and Galatians 5.9. I, I told you you gotta keep your pencil sharp this morning. But you need to see the picture here. Because there were two wave loaves, and they were were to be baked with leaven, and it foreshadowed the church that was being birthed on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, because the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, two wave loaves, and the two loaves made with leaven, picturing sin, because, listen, the church is made up of sinners who are only made holy in Christ at the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we will discuss shortly. So there's a picture in what God was doing. It's also no coincidence that 10 days expired from the ascension of Jesus to the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost. And if you know anything about Bible numerology, you know that 10 is the number of what? Say it. Those of you who've been through MTT, what's 10 the number of? Gentiles. Gentiles. Thank you. Again, just foreshadowing that God was changing the game. That something different was going on. But again, it's all a transition. And it takes place over time. This was absolutely the birth of the church. We know it. But we know it because of hindsight and because we have a completed Bible. You see, the church at the time of Acts chapter 2 was still all Jewish. The Jewish kingdom offer was still on the table. These disciples weren't going out to the Gentiles yet. But but, we can see, but now, looking back, looking through a completed Bible, we can see what God was doing. And we see all the pictures and the foreshadowing of how God was changing the game. And we can look back now and see what was happening. And what was happening was something beautiful. And part of the beauty was because the disciples were doing what they were absolutely supposed to be doing. They were waiting on that promise. And they were celebrating the Lord in prayer. And we know that by that special phrase in the book of Acts that we studied last week, with one accord. Doug Sammons told me this is how he knows that God's vehicles are Hondas, with one accord. I don't don't know if that's true or not, but. In Acts 2.1, look at it again. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. All right, so what does this mean? So so first of all, who who is the they? They were all in one accord. Well, comparing Scripture to Scripture, Acts 2.1 with Acts 1.14, we learn that it's still the, the 120 that we talked about last week. It's the 120. They were all there with one accord in one place, and they were praying. We saw that last week. That is a big part of what that phrase means, the one accord. We also know from history that initially the church used the same times the Jews prayed in the temple. The rabbis taught that God, God's people should pray, and the times of corporate prayer every day were 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And the Jewish 24-hour day starts at 6 p.m., so the day part starts at 6 a.m., right, 12 hours later. That's when Pentecost was fully come, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, when the day arrived, which would have been 6 a.m. And, and they were praying at 9 a.m. When the, that's when the Spirit came. And, and we know this from down to verse 15. And we'll look at this verse more next week. But verse 15, Peter says, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day. Is 9 a.m. So I told you this is going to be workmanlike, so you got to stick with me. These are just details we got to get through. So the event was Pentecost. It's not the experience of Pentecost because, again, we're not trying to get back to it. It's not something we're, we're, we want to experience again. That's not how God works. Then second, we need to discuss the evidence of the Spirit's coming. And we see this in verses 2 through 4, the evidence of the Spirit's coming. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a... Rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so now this is where things get really interesting. The Spirit's coming, and it's evidenced by all, it's seen by all, and it's first of all, it's evidenced by a sound. All right, it's evidenced by a sound. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it's cool that it happens suddenly because that's exactly how it happens in our life as well. Again, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about this. This was a, a one-time event. But there's so many similarities to how God still works in our life today. In a moment, when you make a free will choice to accept Christ as your Savior, then suddenly... The Spirit indwells you. That's how new life is created physically as well. In a moment, conception occurs suddenly. So the church was born, so to speak, suddenly on this earth. And its last moment on this earth will happen suddenly as well. Because according to 1 Corinthians 15.52, the rapture of the church is going to occur in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. It's going to be a sudden event. So suddenly these disciples heard a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. And the wind in the Bible is an emblem or a picture of the Holy Spirit. So for example, John 3.8 says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You can see this picture in the Old Testament as well. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 9 through 14 is a good cross-reference for you that we're not going to take time to go through. But there's definitely a connection between wind and the Holy Spirit in the Bible. But here at Pentecost, there wasn't actually any wind. It was just the sound of the wind. They heard something. They didn't feel something. That's a very important sentence that I just said. They heard something. They did not feel something. And that's because the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. Now, I'm not saying you won't feel joy or peace when you get saved. You likely will, but that is a byproduct. You do not receive the Holy Spirit through a feeling. But do you know how you do receive him? By acting in faith upon what you hear. Because Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith cometh by what? By hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, we're starting to break down some of these heresies little by little, and, and this is really jumping ahead, but this also breaks down a Pentecostal doctrine of tongues being the initial sign of the filling of the Holy Ghost. Because if you use Acts chapter 2 as the proof text for that doctrine, which they do, then what we see in verse 2 is that the first, first manifestation is the sound of wind, not the speaking of tongues. So they're already inconsistent, but we'll, we'll talk more about that shortly. So the first evidence is a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And sound is real, but it's immaterial. It's invisible, but it can't be touched, much like the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when this sound came, did you notice what the disciples were doing? It says they were sitting. They were sitting. And again, it's it's at the end of verse 2, and it's a beautiful picture. And the picture there is the arrival of the Holy Spirit does not come with man's activity. There is nothing you can do to earn it. He gives freely Based on faith. So that's the first piece of evidence. But then the second evidence of the Spirit's coming was, a, was something of sight. So there was a sound, but now there was something that they saw. And according to verse 3, what they saw was cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. Woo! <laughs> I mean... Listen, this is not your everyday occurrence. This is crazy, but the Bible says it. So it's absolutely true. And the word cloven, it means divided or split. So it's like a forked tongue on fire sitting on them. But this is a beautiful picture. (laughs) These tongues of fire symbolize the powerful witness the church was to have for the people through split Multiple languages even. And it represented God's power, specifically through his word to lead his people. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? And this was something that God used, his word, pictured by fire, to lead his people. You see it throughout the Old Testament. Led the nation of Israel, used it to lead the nation of Israel in the wilderness, right? Acts chapter 40, verse 38 says, For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. All right, you've got to catch this. you got to, this is, so, listen, if anybody thinks that man could write this book, they're out of their minds. This picture is beautiful. Because look at what a what God do. He led the nation of Israel by fire at night when they were going through the wilderness, right? And there's a picture there because what God was doing at Pentecost and Acts was empowering and leading the house of God in the night. Because the church age is the night, according to 1 Thessalonians 5 and Romans 13. And the night is far spent, by the way, the Bible tells us. But the night was starting, and God was leading his house by fire. It's a beautiful picture. You see, God's temple was no longer a building, the veil was rent top to bottom when Jesus cried, It is finished. And then he died. And now God's dwelling place is in his children. And the cloven tongues of fire picture all this. It's God indwelling his people and empowering them for the mission through his word. And that's something they needed to see. It was an outward sign that the promise of Acts 1-4 had been fulfilled. And with just comparing a a few scriptures and having a general understanding of the Bible. You can land in the right spot, but there's so much confusion as, as of this point. And it's because the deception is of the devil. He's an imitator and he purposely brings confusion. So tongues of fire can come from heaven to explain, as they do in Acts chapter 2, or from hell to deceive. And James 3 tells us that. And the immediate context of James 3 is the physical tongue, of course. But don't miss the picture here as well. James 3 verses 5 and 6 says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things, behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, and it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and setteth on fire of hell. The devil has set tongues on fire to imitate and to confuse many people for years. And the confusion here is related to the baptism that was described back in Acts chapter 1. So what, what God said, you need to wait for the promise. And when the promise comes, a baptism is going to occur, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And that's what God does when, when he brings the Holy Spirit. He introduces this baptism, the baptism of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and this has been messed up from day one and 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 why it was messed up is, is they the the people the charismatic doctrine that that says this is a holy spirit baptism of fire they confuse multiple baptisms in the, in the bible and they confuse this baptism of the Holy Ghost with the baptism of fire described in Luke 3.16, among other places. But, but look there with me. Luke 3.16 says, John answered, and saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I come. One mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. All right, and so they connect these two verses. They say, well, Acts 1.5 says, you see the comparison. John truly baptized with water. Here John's talking in Luke 13. And he's saying, you know, we're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. In Acts 1.5, he says, I'm baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And the thinking is, okay, well, well, that's exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 2, there was a baptism of the Holy Ghost promised there, and fire was involved, so this, this must be all one big thing. These two things... Must be the same thing. Even though there is no mention of fire in Acts 1-5, and there is no actual fire in Acts 2-3, it was like as of fire. Additionally, nowhere in the book of Acts is the baptism of the Holy Ghost described with fire, not one time. No, the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire Are not the same. They're not one thing. They're two things. Luke is referring to two different baptisms. And in case you don't know, there are seven baptisms that you can find outlined in the Bible. But we don't have time to talk about that either. Join MTT. That's all I can tell you. But in Luke three, Luke is referring to to two of the seven baptisms: the baptism of the Holy Ghost and a separate baptism fire. And by the way, if you buy into this charismatic doctrine, you should pay attention to the grammar. Because you would notice that Luke 3.16 ends in a colon. So what is after a colon is going to define or further describe what is in front of the colon. So if they would just keep reading, they would actually get the Bible's definition of the baptism of fire in the very next verse. Luke 3.17 says, describing this, Fire, baptism of fire, colon, whose fan is in his hand and he will throughly perch his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And that's undoubtedly speaking of hellfire. And this did not happen in Acts chapter 2. This is going to happen in Revelation chapter 20, as those who reject God are cast into the lake of fire. I promise you, you do not want the baptism of fire, I promise you. But you do want the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And for us, that occurs at the moment you accept Christ as you're placed into the body of Christ. And it happened a little different for them in Acts chapter two, because this is the birth, this is the inception of the body of Christ. So for them, it was here at a one-time event. For us, it happens when we accept Christ as our Savior. And this is described most fully In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, right? Two wave loaves. Whether we be bond or free. We've been all made to drink into one spirit. So so very quickly, let's just take the mystery out of this. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is God's Holy Spirit placing a believer into the organic body of Christ. That's what we just read. That's what it is. That's what what we saw this morning is a picture of that. The baptism of water is a picture of the one true baptism. And and as they get baptized, they enter the membership of the local body, right? They get baptized uh, in the spirit and they're they're entered into the membership of the organic body. By one spirit, we are baptized into one body. This is the one true baptism. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 4 through 6, he says there's one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. So how do you get into the body of Christ? Well, it's by one spirit you are baptized. And that happens at the moment you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for salvation. And and let me just say here, if you've never done that, if there's never been a time in your life where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, then you are not a part of the body of Christ. It doesn't matter how long you've come to this church or if you've been a part of other churches in the past. It doesn't matter your involvement in church. It only matters if you've been spiritually baptized, if you're in Christ. And you've only been spiritually baptized if by grace you've been saved through your faith in Jesus Christ. And for us, it's not accompanied by tongues or fire or even a chill down your spine. In fact, at your spiritual baptism, you are made to be part of the body of Christ whether you feel it or not because that is what the Bible says. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been put on Christ. What a great truth this is, the doctrine of our spiritual baptism of the Holy Ghost. And, and we see it here in Acts chapter two, the very beginning of this new dispensation, this new age that God's starting. And again, for those Jewish disciples, it was a little different, because Acts 2:4 says, "And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." And that brings us to our third point, and that is the effect of the spirits coming, so we had the event it was 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 Pentecost uh, and then and then what was our second point I just I just blanked what was it the, the evidence yeah the evidence we had the sight and the sound and then we have now we have the effect um, so in this unique experience during a transitional time in history where the focus is still Jewish, the apostles then after they were baptized were filled with the spirit which we can still be filled with the Spirit after our salvation as well. We don't even have time to talk about that today, but the Bible talks about that many times. Ephesians 5.18, be ye filled with the Spirit, right? Because we can quench the Spirit in our life, and so it doesn't mean we're not saved. We're still saved. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But, But we need to be filled with the Spirit as we walk in the Spirit in Him. And so this is the same type of picture here. After they were baptized, they're then filled with the Spirit. Baptism had already occurred. And the effect for them in this day was speaking in tongues. But we get the definition of what is occurring as we continue reading. Look at verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya, and to Cyrene, and the strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. All right, so this isn't difficult either. What was happening here, and what happened every time in the Bible that someone spoke in tongues was that they were speaking in a language that they didn't know, but it was the native language of the hearer. Not some gibberish that nobody knows. Every man heard them speak in his own language. Hear we every man in our own tongue. Nearly 15 of them by my count. And the speaking in these languages came as a result of filling, not of baptism. It came as a result of filling, not of baptism. It was an effect Of the baptism. And to connect these languages to the baptism of the Spirit is to err because baptism is simply the placing of the believer into the body. That's what baptism is. But that is what charismatic doctrine states. They say that the proof of being baptized by the Holy Ghost and fire is that you speak in tongues. And so they tie the two together. And so not only do they confuse the baptism, they confuse the purpose and the use of tongues. Because not one charismatic person speaking in tongues in their church this morning is speaking in another man's language. Not one of them. And beyond all that, we can know undoubtedly that tongues are not for today. This was a unique experience at a unique time. Well, God was still trying to get the Jews to see him for who he really was. Paul explains this to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. And the law it is written with men of other tongues and of other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, i.e. the church, but to them that believe not. But prophesying is serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. And really, this isn't difficult either. Tongues were for a sign to them that believe not. And we know from earlier in in this same book that signs are for Jews. 1 Corinthians 1.22, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So tongues were for unbelieving Jews. You cannot land anywhere else if you're going to be true to the Bible. It's not for them to believe, but then to believe not, and signs are for Jews. So, tongues were for unbelieving Jews, attached irretrievably to specific points in history. And they served to show that Christianity was not to be distinctly Jewish, but worldwide. They served to substantiate and authenticate the speakers and the messengers who brought that message. And they served to show Israel that they had again rejected God in unbelief and apostasy. And so while tongues were still valid through that transitional time in history, even when Paul was writing some of those early epistles, all they already weren't profitable for the church. And Paul says that. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, the prophesying or preaching, that was profitable for the church. And again, like Paul was for a sign, and that's an important word the Bible uses, and it provides more insight for what all this means for us today. And I've used this example before, but I'm going to use it again because it's a good one. So just think for a second, if you're driving up I-77 to Cleveland, and when you leave Philly, you get on the highway, you'll start seeing some road signs. And they're going to tell you that you're, it's so many miles to Canton and so many miles to Akron and so many miles to Cleveland. And when you get to Canton, you'll see a sign that tells you, welcome to Cleveland. And when you get to Akron, you'll see a sign that says, welcome to Akron or, or whatever. But when you pass Canton and you pass Akron and you're still on I-77 on your way to Cleveland, guess what signs you're not going to see anymore? You will not see any more signs that tell you how far it is to Canton and to Akron. You won't see any more signs that tell you you've arrived at Canton or Akron, and why is that? Because it's passed. Once what the sign is pointing to has passed, you don't you do not need the sign anymore, and that is why the sign gifts have ceased and why tongues have ceased, just as Paul said they would. 1 Corinthians 13:8, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. because what they were pointing to has passed. It was unbelieving Jews. God was trying to get their attention. You see, again, we don't have time to fully explain all this, but that Jewish kingdom offer was still on the table now, we know from hindsight and the completed Bible that they rejected it. And, and, and because of that, we can look back and we can see all those beautiful pictures of what God was doing and all the foreshadowing of what God was doing. It actually didn't have to end that way. The Jews could have accepted him. So there was a time he was still trying to get their attention, and they rejected him. And we'll see that you know, once we get further on in this book. But they rejected him, and once that time is gone, man, He's not looking to, do, to use the same methods that he used with them. Tongues had a place, and they have a definition, but they're no longer valid today. They have ceased because the real purpose of tongues was never to teach. It was always to point, to point the Jews to what God was doing. But then God did it. That's what signs are. They don't, they're not to teach. They're to point. And when God did it, there was no more need for the sign. A new thing was underway. And the church pretty soon was going to be open to the world. And it's interesting because there's another beautiful picture that we see here. And this is just a picture. But the picture is that the church is to be the reversal of God's judgment at the Tower of Babel when God confused man's language. Because God's judgment at Babel scattered the people. But God's blessing at Pentecost here in Acts 2 united the believers in the Spirit. And at Babel, the people were unable to understand each other, but at Pentecost, men heard praising of God and understood what was being said in multiple languages. The Tower of Babel was a demonic scheme to praise men, but the church is a godly plan to bring himself glory. So the building of Babel was an act of rebellion. But at Pentecost, the apostles showed humble submission to God, and there's quite a contrast. But the sad thing is that the church today is messing up the picture. And, and through bad doctrine and lukewarmness, man, we're, we're headed right back to Babel. And God won't stand for it much longer, just like he didn't stand for it then. But God's plan is perfect, and the pictures are amazing. So that was the effect of the Spirit's coming, the speaking in native tongues for a specific reason at a specific time. So we had the event, we had the evidence, we had the effect. And the last thing we need to discuss is the extremes. The extremes of the Spirit's coming. And this bleeds into next week a little bit, but look at verses 12 and 13. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? I mean, they were confused. Look at verse 13. Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. And they thought they were drunk. You see, the interesting thing here is that despite all that had occurred, the sound of a rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues as a fire sitting on those apostles' heads, resting on them, then those 12 men speaking in all these multiple languages, again, by my count, up to 15, declaring the wonderful works of God, everybody able to understand it in their native language, in spite of all of that, there were still some that doubted and others that mocked. Just, just think about that. And yet, how is that different than today? Undeniable evidence is still not enough for certain people. Some doubted, and some mocked, and they made fun of the apostles, accused them of being drunk. It's, it's no coincidence that Paul compares and contrasts being drunk with being filled in the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And be not drunk with wine, wearing is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul said, don't let the Spirit's, plural, control you. Let the Spirit control you. But in this, we see the extremes in response to the movement of God. There are those who are amazed. And convinced, and as a result, they believe and they live their life by the leading of the spirit and submission to God's word. And yet there are others who see this very same evidence, hear the very same sermon, watch the very same changed life, and they aren't moved at all. I mean, just think of the two malefactors hanging on the, on the crosses next to Jesus, Luke 23 verses 39 through 41, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him. Saying, "If thou be Christ, save thyself and us." But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, "Dost not thou fear God? Seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss." This is two. I mean, two guys seeing the same thing, and one says, "If you're really him, like I doubt it, I doubt it. But if you're really him, why don't you save us all?" And the other is like, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, don't you see who he is? We're guilty. He's not. There's two different responses to the same evidence. And it just shows you the hardness of heart and selfishness that can be found in man. But listen, even those of us who are saved, who have made that right decision, we're still not immune to this and how we live our lives and how we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And for us, it's even worse because we've seen the evidence and we've accepted it and we've believed it and then we still don't do anything with it. And we read his word, his word that we believe has saved our soul and we ignore it And, and we spit on it as we just live our lives however we want. When we do that, do you know what we're doing? We're mocking him. The person we say is our Savior and our Lord. Yeah, he's just not good enough to do what he says. He's not good enough to follow. You're making a mockery of Christ. But just know that that's always going to be man. Just don't be one of them. And if you're not one of them, know that there will be always those that disagree with your conclusions about the Bible and about the God of the Bible. There will be enemies that fight you. We see that here from the very inception of the body of Christ. And if you trace the book of Acts, it just escalates from there. This is only the beginning of a dissenting attitude and actions against the the work of the Lord Because I put these verses on there that we can scroll through them. But what you see in in Acts 4, verse 7 is that they start, the dissenters start to question Peter, right? What power, what name have you done this? By, By verse 17, they start to threaten him. Let us straightly threaten them. By chapter 5 and verse 18, they put the apostles in prison. By chapter 5 and verse 40, they're beating them. And eventually, in chapter 7 to verse 58, they kill because of the apostles' message of Jesus. You just see what the mockery leads to. And it leads to them killing Stephen and stoning him for for the message of the Bible. And there will always be opposition to the mission, and there still is today. Isn't it amazing how the preaching of God's word and the working of God's spirit divides people right down the middle? And men either come running to Jesus Christ or they come against a, his own with, with stones and sticks. And listen, there may come a day where we are right back in the book of Acts. The, the question for us is what will we do then? If we face what those first century believers faced, will we stand? I love Moses' admonition to the Israelites. It's a time he's just fed up with them after they had done the golden calf. And Exodus 32, 26, and Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. You know, and, and, and I'll say, like Moses literally, he drew the proverbial line in the sand. He's like, if you're on the Lord's side, come to me. If you're not, stay over there. So let me ask you, whose side are you on? Are you part of those willing to do whatever it takes to turn the world upside down? Or will you fold when things get tough? There are extremes to people's attitude towards the Lord. There's hot and there's cold. Don't try to run the middle. Go to one side or the other. I mean, get cold or way better than that, get hot. And serve him with your life. It's worth doing. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And like I told you, I know today was, you know, More workmanlike, a lot of doctrine, a lot of Bible study. But listen, what I don't want you to miss is just the power of Almighty God and what he can do in a person's life. And he can change your life today, suddenly, in a moment, just based on a decision. A decision to follow him with your life. If you've you've never been saved and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, all it takes is a decision to place your faith in what Christ did. Believe that and place your faith in that. And if you're already saved and you're not following him, it just takes a decision to say, you know what, I'm going to quit playing around and I'm going to start serving him with my life today. What What am I doing? Why am I waiting? So quit waiting, serve him today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we love you so much and and so thankful for what you did on that day and and starting what we are all a part of now, your body. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that is. Thank you for that. Thank you for the path that we have. Thank you for what Christ did on the cross. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, and I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts them now to to give their life to you. And if there are any believers here that are saved and yet carnal, Lord, I pray that you change them and, and that they would Decide today to live their life for you, Lord. We 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 love you. We're so grateful for you and all you, all that you've done and all that you continue to do for us in our individual lives and in this church, going on 165 years. Thank you for that. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.